The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Of what life can truly be. Message, I pray that the words that come out of my lips are from you, and I pray that all our hearts would be receptive to what you have for us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, two weeks ago, um, I did the first half of Philippians 21, and last week I was out of the pulpit. appreciate Joe stepping in as he does and uh, such a wonderful job. It was great to sit back there and, uh, in my old pew and be ministered to, and I uh, really appreciate that, Joe. Philippians, as we've seen, is powerful for so many reasons, but I think one of the key reasons is that it takes the reality of everyday life and it fills it with passion. It fills it with a heart that is readily available to all who will take it. And so this morning, we are looking at our death benefits. Kind of a strange title, isn't it? But let's look at uh, what Paul writes in Philippians 1, beginning in verse 21. For to me... To live is Christ. That means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Ah, we have it up. Now, pay close attention. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Listen to that verse again. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. Now, when you first listen to that, you could almost get the idea that Paul is kind of cocky, kind of arrogant. You know, here I come, look at me. But what Paul is stressing to these folks is that his life is so surrendered to Christ that he knows Christ is going to do Christ's will through him. And in doing so, It will cause these people to glory in Christ Jesus. And what we've been saying almost weekly now in our study of Philippians is that the whole purpose you and I were created was to bring glory to Christ and to have fellowship with Him. And so Paul's very presence causes them to glory in Christ Jesus. Now the reason I emphasize that verse to you this morning is because that ought to be the single most important goal would be magnified through us and cause others to glory in Christ Jesus. Now, the second half of verse 21 moves from the subject of life in Christ's death, or it moves from the subject of life in Christ to death in Christ and teaches that there is great benefits in death for Christians. Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
Two verses later, he adds, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Death, a gain. And death, far better. How vividly these words completely change our outlook on life. Now, before I get into our benefits, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention death for unbelievers. Because unfortunately, it is necessary to say that although death holds benefits for Christians, it certainly does not hold benefits for the unsaved. A Christian may experience much of hell on earth. We might have many trials and many difficulties and life be a struggle. But beyond that, the bliss of heaven and unbroken fellowship awaits us. On the other hand, all that the unbeliever will know of heaven is the heaven he makes for himself here on earth. Subconsciously, the non-Christians know this. Thus, death looms large as a dreadful enemy. Philosophers have pictured death in abstract language, and poets have romanticized it, both attempting to lessen its terror. Francis Bacon wrote, Men fear death as children fear the dark. But how grateful you and I can be this morning and how free we can be from this terror. He himself took of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You and I, who know Christ, will be delivered. We know that for a fact. And what an amazing truth for each one of us. So, the best gets better. Some people have imagined that if a person suffers enough in life, death comes as a relief, a blissful relief from suffering. From suffering. And some have speculated that it's only in this sense that death is a blessing to Christians. Christians have often been tortured for their faith, and many have suffered great natural calamities. From this perspective, death sometimes has been called a greater blessing. However, this distorts the biblical principle and the picture that's created here. Death for the always pictured as an improvement over the best. Certainly, this is the idea that Paul is conveying here. We might imagine that Paul was suffering in prison and was anxious for a spirit, speedy delivery, even through the portal of death. But this just is the opposite of how Paul thought. Paul's life was full. He had been enriched by fellowship with Christ. He writes, for me to live is Christ. Now remember, he's writing this from prison, chained to a Roman centurion. And for him to live is Christ. He was confident that Christ would be magnified in the way he led his life. He speaks of his earnest expectation and hope that in all ways Christ would be exalted in his body. You see, it didn't matter what circumstance Paul was in. As long as he, he was filled with delight 
that his work at Philippi had prospered. He even seen the spread of the gospel through Rome, and these facts filled his deepest desires. Consequently, the statement that surrounds his circumstances at Rome is quite optimistic. So it is against this background that the great Apostle Paul terms death better by far. One commentator has written, Life and death look to us like two evils of which we don't know which is worse. As for the apostle, they look to him like two immense blessings of which he knows not which is better. How on earth does one have that perspective? Here's the key. And if you're taking notes, I would suggest you write this down. On either side of the veil, Jesus Christ was all things to Paul. On either side of the veil, life or death, Jesus Christ was all things to Paul. That's why he could say that I've learned in whatever state I'm in, whatever state I'm in, to rejoice. So this brings us to something I think is very important for us. And I want to challenge you this morning and ask God to lead you in creating and cultivating a surrendered heart. Every day, ask Him to lead you to that goal. Every morning, try to set your alarm clock a half hour early. And ask the Lord to lead you in the path that Paul showed. Lord, how do I have the heart to live for you in every circumstance? Now, because of this, there are many benefits in death for the Christian. But I want to focus on three primarily this morning. Three benefits of death. Number one... Freedom from evil. Death brings permanent freedom from evil. The Christian who has tasted the delight of God's righteousness longs for a purity that he will never have on this earth. He longs to be free from the pain. From There's an interesting image that kind of directs our thoughts to what Paul is trying to say here. In verse 23, Paul says that his desire is to depart and to be with Jesus. The Greek word translated depart is the word in which we get our word analysis. It had various uses in ancient times, sometimes referring to the freeing of slaves, sometimes to resolve a problem, and often to the breaking of camp by the military. In every instance the word is used, it conveys the idea of leaving something permanently behind. And you see this most clearly when you think of the Roman centurions. When they came to the end of a very busy, long day of marching, they would make camp. But this was no ordinary camp. This wasn't just a few tents and a fire. No, it was quite elaborate. What they would do is they would pace out a rectangle big enough, like a fortress. In the morning, when they would break camp, 
They would simply take their belongings and leave everything behind. Strictly a mute testimony that they had ever been there in the first place. They just packed up and left everything. And you see, Paul suggests that in a very similar way, Christians break camp to be with Jesus. All is left behind. All of the sin, all of the pain, all of the care and anguish of this world. In death, there is great freedom. It is to convey such a peaceful freedom that the Bible speaks of death as asleep even. Stephen is said to have fallen asleep when his earthly life came to an end by stoning. Jesus referred to Lazarus as falling asleep. And Paul wrote many times of the to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not perceive those who have fallen asleep. So the first benefit that we have in Christ is that we leave evil behind. And there's that peaceful transition. Number two, we will be like Jesus. That's an amazing thought. John wrote in 1 John 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. Before sin, Adam walked with the Lord in the cool of the evening. When we get to heaven, we will see Jesus with no restrictions. Can you imagine that? We will see him face to face. It's not enough to say that death brings freedom from evil. The Bible teaches that death brings a final perfection of the sanctification of the believer that has begun here on earth. So we shall be like him. That means we shall be like him in righteousness. Paul speaks of this in 2 Timothy 4 verse 8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Can you imagine sinful, wretched people? And God is going to reward us a crown of righteousness? Absolutely undeserved merit and favor by God. The thoughts are breathtaking. Crowned with righteousness. We do not know the righteousness now. We have only a taste to go on. But the day is coming when we shall be what we should be. And things that are not now, nor could be, then shall be our own. Amazing thought that we should be like him in righteousness. Also, we shall be like him in knowledge. Now, we see things in First Baptist, Second Baptist, Third Baptist. You know, we don't see things clearly. And in that day, we shall know as God knows us. And all that has puzzled us in this life will become very clear. I love 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror 
dimly. Have you ever walked into the bathroom and you didn't turn the light on, but you look in the mirror and you see maybe it's kind of dark or twilight, and you see your outline, but you just can't see all the details? Well, that's what he's saying here. We see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Our knowledge will be perfect. Imagine that. And thirdly, we shall also be like Christ in love. Now, let's be honest. There is much of self in everything we do. Even in the love relationships with the people closest to us, there is always was selfless and self-sacrificing. It was a love that reached us when we were sinners and saved us for this life and the eternity to come. How wonderful that God's love stooped low enough to reach us that it will yet carry us into his presence. We will love with total Christ-like love. Now, you know, one of the hardest things for us is to love someone who just seems incapable of loving us the way we want. But when you are able to accept what you, are, what you can give, if you are able to accept what they can give and be content with it, you begin to understand how Christ could love us while we were still sinners. How you can love someone and accept their ability to love under their capability and yet magnify that love. And allow Christ to love through you. You can hide all, And it's an amazing truth. We shall be like Christ in love. Number three. We shall be with him. Now. We are not with him physically. But we are with him. And he is with us in this life. He has given us his spirit to indwell us. He has given us the word of God, which the scripture says is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. We can also trust the fact that he will stay deeply close to us even through death. Psalm 46 verse 1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And one verse that I love to use at funerals is Psalm 116, verse 15. Precious is the sight of the Lord. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Now, why is that precious? Well, because now we can be what God intended us to be. This whole sin life had separated us. We were cut off from God, from his mercy and grace. And because of what Christ did on Calvary, we can be restored with him. And when we accept Christ as Savior, that relationship is, is restored. And from that point forward, our whole goal in life ought to be living for him. 
But when we cross that veil, we are now fully and completely in our intended purpose. I remember when my kids were young, Christmas morning, birthdays, and you would buy a gift that you just knew, oh, they just really wanted it. And when it came time to open it and they got to the package, I had so much excitement, I couldn't, couldn't hardly stand it. Open it, open it, open it. You know? Because I couldn't wait for them to see what they were getting. And I kind of pictured Jesus sitting in heaven when one of his saints is about to pass through and thoroughly excited because what he has promised, they're about to take and receive fully. What an amazing joy. One of the things I used to do when the kids were young and, and uh, in Awana is we'd bring them to Awana and then I'd go home and I'd, I'd bake one of them, the smartest thing I ever did. But it was so much fun because when they would come home in the cars, what'd you make, Dad? What'd you make, Dad? And there was this anticipation, you know, go home, see what Dad made. And like I said, I, I can just see Jesus. He knows all things. He knows our hearts. He knows well, how we're going to react. But I can just see great joy in his heart knowing that as we're about to step into eternity and go, this is it. What an amazing joy. What amazing compassion that awaits you and I. But the day is coming when we shall be with him as never before. As a bride with her husband the first day. Now death is always a separation. Even for the Christian. For the unbeliever, death is a separation of the soul and the spirit from God. For the Christian, death is a separation from the soul and the spirit from the body. But there is one respect in which death is never a separation. And that is we are never separated from Jesus. Ever. And if you're here this morning and you've trusted Christ as your Savior, do you realize you'll never, ever, ever be separated from him? Ever. Ever, 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 ever. As long as eternity goes. Even for Paul, the dilemma that he stood in wasn't a dilemma between Christ and not Christ. It was a dilemma between Christ and Christ. Christ much and Christ much more. Christ by faith and Christ by sight. In that day... Faith will give way to sight. All the things that you and I believe because the Bible teaches and how the Holy Spirit filtrates our heart and leads us. All the great truths about the Word of God that we know and hold dear, we believe by faith. But when death comes and we step into His presence, faith is no longer needed because we'll see it by sight. We'll be with him and experience all that's been promised to us. You and I also can look forward to that union. But for now, we live for others by his spirit. It's true that death holds benefits for, for believers. Freedom from evil. Freedom to be like Christ. To be in union with him. 
But this was never intended to make Christians flee from the duties of this life. Have you ever noticed that practical considerations always follows the mention of this subject in Scripture? I'm reminded that John argues that everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure, 1 John 3.3. And then the great chapter on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 closes with verse 58. It says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In other words, what the scripture is saying is that you're saved, you're going to be with Jesus forever, heaven is coming, but for right now, I have a work for you to do. I have a plan for your life that I put together before the foundation of the world. I have a plan that I have set aside for you, and I want you to be actively pursuing that plan. Don't stop working for Christ. The problem is, many Christians have never started working. We're never to stop working, but are we working at all? If Christ truly created us to glorify Him, and He created us to have fellowship with Him, and we know that he has created a plan for us to work, how many of us take the time to get in the word of God and allow the Holy Spirit to work in and through us to lead us to that plan in life that he has for us? Every person in this room this morning, God has a plan for you. Do you know what it is? Do you understand that there is a walk he wants you to walk? That there's a talk he wants you to talk. You understand that in him all things are made perfect. So when life comes to hit a screeching halt or take a left turn when you wanted to go right. You suddenly realize that in Christ all things are perfect. So as I challenge you earlier to get in the word and ask God to lead you how to be like Paul. I would also encourage you to say, God, what is that plan you have for me? What is that specific walk that you have before the foundation of the world set up for me? Help me to be faithful to pursue that plan and not be so easily knocked off because of life's catastrophes. You and I will never be free from trouble ever it's what happens this side of the veil it's because of the sin cursed world we live in God has a plan for us to guide us and navigate it through it so we can bring glory to him when we get to heaven and he gives us that crown of righteousness the jewels we've accumulated we can cast back at his feet and say Lord these are yours I followed you. It's the same way for all of us. And it's the same way in the opening chapter of Philippians. No sooner has Paul said that death is a gain. Than he turns back once more to those who are still in his charge. And in a few brief words he acknowledges that if in God's wisdom. 
He remains in this life. Back to Philippians 1, 25 through 26. Convinced of this, settled in my mind and heart. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you. In short, Paul says, I have a walk. I have a calling. It was given to me before the foundation of the world. And in my stubborn sinfulness, when I had to get knocked off that donkey, and that bright light blinded me, and God of heaven said, Paul, Paul, what do you persecute me for? From that moment on, my walk is with you. And this is what Paul is saying to them. It's far better for me to go to heaven, but now, apparently God says it's more needful for me to be here with you so that in me you can glory in Christ Jesus. So while I'm here, folks, let's get in this together. Let's, you and me, come together and let's glorify God. Let's walk in His Spirit. Let's allow Him to live through us so that everyone we come near with will cause to glory in Christ Jesus. Not be frustrated, not go the other way, but glory in Christ Jesus. And every day, you and I get on our knees and say, Lo, Lord, did I walk with you today? Was I in your plan? Did you lead me? Now, you can do it that way, or you can do it my way. You can keep ignoring the, the pangs of the Spirit and then have your career yank away from you. I told you. I wanted you. You can go my way or we can do it your way. There's such a blessing in walking with the Lord. So it must be with all of us. We must lift our minds to contemplate the joys of heaven. But while here, we must live for others. Being Christ to others whenever possible. And allowing everyone we come in contact with to see Jesus. Quite frankly, it's the only reason we exist. For me to live. Die is gain. For me to live. It's Christ. Let's pray. Father, your grace overwhelms that you would love us so much to take wretched lost sinners and make us part of your plan. Not just to rescue us but to make us joint heirs with Jesus Christ. The scripture makes it clear. You want us to share in the same work that Christ started 2,000 years ago. And the fact that I can be called a joint heir with you, just mind-boggling. 
But oh Lord, to know that one day we'll stand in your presence and receive a crown of righteousness that none of us deserves. May we all here and now today make that decision to drop our plans, embrace yours, and walk with Jesus Christ. Thank you for what you're doing, Lord. Continue to bless us. I pray especially you'd bless fathers today. I pray that every dad in this room would recognize the immense joy and privilege they have to lead others to Christ, to their children no matter what age they are, and to those around them. So we praise you, Lord. We thank you. And we commit ourselves to walk with you. And it's in Christ's special name, privileged name, wonderful name, beautiful name, we pray this. Amen. God bless. Amen.